to American Education FM, everybody. I'm Dr. Sean Brooks. Happy Monday, everybody. I want to dive in here on the subject of school law. And while it might not sound like it's the most interesting subject, it's certainly one that needs to, um, well, it, it requires some time. And it requires some ears on this too. And then again, basically asking some basic questions to ourselves as to whether or not what's happening within school environments is legal or not. This is an interesting one because one of the things that we haven't seen enough of are individuals, in particular lawyers, standing up for and with parents against a variety of issues, in particular in school board meetings. We've, we've seen a lot of people who aren't lawyers threaten school boards and say, time to unmask the children or else. Time to take the perverted books out of libraries or else. But how many times are we actually seeing the logical conclusion to those events? And the answer is, is we're not seeing that. We're certainly not seeing it with any regularity anyway which again is unfortunate. And I've mentioned this in the past, but the odds of children who attend these public schools that are abusing these students and these minors with the mask wearing and the mental and emotional harm and the physical harm, which again, I'm going to get into here regarding public school law and read directly from this particular book, which I'll mention in a second. But the odds of, of those students having a parent who is a lawyer is pretty, is pretty good. So the question again remains, where are these parents? Where are these lawyer parents who know that what is going on is illegal? Where is the education law here? Because unfortunately, there's an interesting psychological warfare play that's being made, in my opinion, and that is you're only going to get legal help if the lawyer themselves isn't wearing a mask. You're likely only to get legal help, again, in a situation like this, if the lawyer is awake and knows about what's going on. Much like you're only likely to get ivermectin from a medical doctor face-to-face -face if that doctor is awake and knows what's going on. That's, that's the psychological warfare and satanic aspect of this, is that it's gripped individuals, including lawyers who used to prosecute individuals in school settings for abuse, but now they're not because COVID or whatever whatever excuse they want to use. Point is, is they're believing what's actually happening. And if they believe it, then apparently the law gets thrown out the door. Well, as it turns out, that's not true. The law doesn't get thrown out the door. I personally am not a lawyer. You all know that. I'd like to think I am sometimes. <clears throat> I'm not a medical doctor either. I'd like to think I am sometimes, but I'm not. And I openly admit that. However, the thing that I'm, I'm going to read here, again, from this law, school law book, the one question I want you to consistently ask yourself is, is it provable and can you prove beyond a reasonable doubt that individuals, students, are being harmed mentally, emotionally, physically, socially as a result of the mask wearing? 
we know that the answer is yes. That is provable, which means what's the next move? Do you have to find a lawyer to file a police report for someone's arrest for abusing a child? No, you don't. But again, how awake is that police officer? Do you have to do you have to do you have to know all the ins and outs of suspected child abuse in order to contact child protective services assuming of course that child protective services isn't going to kidnap the child and sell the child into sex slavery and yes that happens unfortunately but um <clears throat> or physically abuse or sexually abuse the child and and send the child to some foster home where the same occurs I mean, we don't know because we don't know the the mental mind frame, so to speak, of, of even those individuals. Those individuals on the other end of the phone, if you were to make that call, might say something like, well, sir, um, the masks are necessary and it's not child abuse and that's not what CPS is for and that's not what our police department is for. So there really isn't a law that's being broken and there's really nothing that we can do. However, <clears throat> you do know. That again, as I've stated a thousand times, and in my most recent book, in the very first chapter, if this were 2019, the rules would be different. But all of the sudden now, everything changed in March of 2020, allegedly. But again, it didn't change. It really didn't. The law still exists. And as it clearly states in this book, ignorance to the law or suspending the law, rather, is not an excuse. It's not a viable excuse. Just like you've heard from individuals who are, <clears throat> excuse me, yelling about the Nuremberg Code and how the Nuremberg Code is still enacted and still relevant to everyone and anyone, in particular regarding crimes against humanity, which is what this is. So, I'm going to read through this book, and the book is titled, I've brought it up briefly in the past, although I haven't, I, I didn't dive into it, and I was sort of waiting for the right time, and this seems like a relevant time. So the book is titled Public School Law, Teachers and Students' Rights, and this is the second edition from 1987. So the date is relevant, not because it's, um, not not because what's mentioned in here doesn't exist anymore. It's just the time period. For example, in a section here where they talk about vaccinations and whether or not students are required to receive vaccinations, it brings up HIV. Because at the time, in 1987, HIV and AIDS was being talked about and being referenced uh, on a consistent basis, in particular within school law. If someone is HIV positive, are they allowed to be a teacher? If, if a child is HIV positive, are they allowed to be a student in that school, etc., etc.? So this book is written by Martha M. McCarthy and Nelda H. Cameron McCabe. Um, again... At least one of the articles is from Miami University, so there's that. Yeah, Nelda Cameron McCabe is from uh, apparently taught at Miami University, and Martha uh, Martha McCarthy taught at Indiana University. So again, we're talking two version two uh, two editions of this book. The first was 1981, and the second 1987. Okay, so here's the first section I want to read. <clears throat> Certainly relevant. It's on page 73, and the subsection is titled Health Requirements. 
So bear with me here as I'm going to read through a number of sections in this particular book. Because again, <clears throat> for a variety of reasons, as one might, might expect, school law is not one of those things that is primarily taught within teacher education courses, in particular now. Although I have met people who do teach in teacher education departments, not, not at Miami University or anywhere else for that matter, but um, <clears throat> what, there was one particular individual I met a number of years ago who, who did teach school law. How well they taught it is another matter, and what exactly was covered is another matter. And uh, <clears throat> are they still teaching school law, and what, what are they possibly teaching regarding this subject? Because, again, a person doesn't have to be a lawyer to know that what's going on clearly looks completely illegal. So keep this in mind, basically. It's just sort of the general theme throughout all of this as I'm, as I'm reading this, and each one of these sections is, again, under the, under the giant umbrella of the mask wearing, the distancing, the psychological damage, and the physical abuse as a result of the mask wearing with the medical conditions that have come about as a result of all of that. Um, is it against the law? And again, <clears throat> you're, you're smart people. So you're going to know that that is in fact the case. Where it gets even more complicated, of course, in particular when it comes to the ignorance of the individuals who work within these settings, is do they know that being jabbed and being jabbed and being around the unjabbed is actually making the unjabbed ill? <clears throat> do they know that or not? Sorry, I'm going to be clearing my throat on a regular basis here, or else I'll be editing the absolute hell out of this entire episode. Um, so, so again, three separate things, again, to, to consider. The mask wearing, the transmissibility of being around the jabbed, and the psychological abuse and the physical abuse, again, of what is being caused with all of that. So here we go. Health requirements. Quote, State agencies have the power not only to mandate school attendance, but also to require students to be in good health so as not to endanger the well-being of others. In any early case in the United States Supreme Court rejected a federally constitutional challenge to a Texas law authorizing local school officials to condition public and private school attendance on vaccination against communicable diseases. Numerous courts subsequently have upheld mandatory vaccination requirements even when challenged on religious grounds and have reasoned that there need not be a pending epidemic to justify such requirements which is unfortunate. Um, well, yeah, th th that can be interpreted a lot of ways. The, the point is, is that what they're saying clearly, at least the way I'm interpreting it, is there doesn't need an epidemic, there doesn't need to be an epidemic to require a vaccination, which should be a warning to everyone listening to this. They're claiming we have a pandemic, which we do not. The pandemic is stupidity, and unfortunately, there's no inoculation for that. What does exist, however, is this falsified panic, and then, of course, they're going to ramp it up because they know that they have the right to vaccinate and make that a requirement for attending their school. Keep in mind, <clears throat> as I continue to read this, that's going to be their next play. Their next play is going to be that move, and that right there is the deadliest move they made. they have made thus far, and they will make it. It continues, quote, Parents have been convicted for indirectly violating compulsory attendance laws 
because they have refused to have their children vaccinated as a prerequisite to, it, to school admission. In a typical case, a New Jersey school board policy requiring immunization against diphtheria has a condition of school attendance, as a condition of school attendance, rather, was challenged by a group of Christian scientists. A state superior court upheld the policy, noting that the school board had the authority to mandate immunization without waiting for an epidemic to occur. Similarly, the New Hampshire Supreme Court held that parents' views, whether conscientious, religious, scientific, could not justify refusal to have their child vaccinated. The Supreme Court of Arkansas also declared that religious freedom does not mean that parents can engage in religious practices, quote-unquote, inconsistent with the peace, safety, and health of inhabitants of the state, unquote. Here's the thing with the law. In almost every line, there's a thousand things that could be said here. Again, they're saying that schools have the right to inoculate children regardless of whether or not there's actually a problem or not. If they just decide to add an immunization to the list, they can do it. The unfortunate part is, is that, although fortunate to some extent, is that these poisonous jabs are not FDA approved, which means they can't mandate them in school. And if they become FDA approved, which they may never, because again, you have to think about this too as a depopulation program and a giant kill event. If they do mandate them, that means that they have to have commercials on television. And those commercials have to tell people what the side effects are. Just like all the other medicine commercials where they say, death, diarrhea, sore knees, fat knees, uh, sore ears, um, sweaty armpits. And they run through the entire list of side effects. They have to do that with these jabs on television then, which include death, blood clotting, a thousand other things. Are they going to want to do that, or are they going to want to just continue the slow kill? That's the question that, that needs to be answered and that we, at the very least, need to think about. So there's that. Um, and again, the irony here is, is that they think that people being inoculated is somehow making people healthy. They, they believe that, when in fact the exact opposite is true. The immune systems are compromised of the individuals who have taken the jabs. That's number one. And number two, the unjabbed being around the jabbed is putting the unjabbed at risk of being ill for a variety of different reasons because of people being transmitted on, as I still think has happened to me, which is why I can't shake this cough. Um, <clears throat> moving on. In some states... Statutes provide for an exemption from required immunizations for members of religious sects, those teaching, those te uh, I'm sorry, whose teachings oppose the pra practice as long as the welfare of others is not endangered by the exemption. These statutory religious exemptions have evoked a range of judicial interpretations. For example, some courts have interpreted such statutes broadly, reasoning that parents can qualify for a religious exemption for their children in situations where vaccination is not specifically prohibited by official church doctrine, or where the individuals objecting to immunization on religious grounds are not members of an organized church. 
Other courts have narrowly interpreted such statutory exemptions and found them unconstitutional because they discriminate against individuals who have religious exemptions to vaccination but are not church members. So here's how I interpret this. I think it's worthy and noteworthy, and and certainly a move I think that parents could make, is can you prove again that the vaccinations are in fact harmful? Well, of course you can. Of course you can. Uh, uh, the very PDF documents and the very audio documents that I've put out on, on my BitChute account uh, and my BitChute channel, American Education FM, by the way, uh, and Gab, and all over these platforms, the, the, the FDA themselves is saying that this is dangerous. Countless medical doctors are saying that this is dangerous, both the jabs and being around the jab, which means, again, as a parent, can you prove to a school board or a school district that you don't want your child to be jabbed or wear a mask because it's unhealthy? Can you prove that? And the answer is yes. Can they prove that the jabs on their end, can they prove that the jabs are healthy? Can they prove that the mask wearing is necessary? And the answer is no, they cannot. All they're doing again is following orders from the CDC and their local health departments because they're all following orders. But following orders is not a legal excuse. And that right there is the main point. And that's the point that has to be remembered throughout this entire thing. Following what someone else said because they said it does not make it lawful. Now, I'm going to skip ahead here to page 260. And the subchapter is titled Reporting Child Abuse. Again, worth asking yourself the exact same questions as, as mentioned before. Quote, Child abuse and neglect are recognized as national problems. Reports indicate that the number of abused or neglected children each year is approaching one million. Because the majority of these children are school-aged, teachers are in a unique role to detect signs of potential abuse. States, recognizing the daily contact teachers have with students, have imposed certain duties for reporting suspected abuse. All states have enacted some type of child abuse law, and with few exceptions, teachers are identified among the professionals required to report signs of abuse. Most state laws impose criminal liability for failure to report child abuse. Penalties may include fines ranging from $500 to $1,000, prison terms up to one year or both. Civil suits also may be uh, initiated against teachers for negligence in failing to report suspected abuse. God, this sounds like every administrator I used to work with. This is awful. Anyway, continuing. While specific aspects of coverage of the laws may vary from one state to another, definitions of abuse and neglect often are similar to that included in the Federal Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act of 1974. There's one to reference right there in the future. The Federal Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act of 1974. That definition, as it states here, identifies child abuse and neglect as Quote, the physical or mental injury, sexual abuse or exploitation, negligent treatment or maltreatment of a child under the age of 18, or the age specified by the child protection law of the state in question, 
by a person who is responsible for the child's welfare under the circumstances which indicate that the child's health or welfare is harmed or threatened thereby. Again, if that doesn't sound like the mask wearing, the psychological abuse, the distancing, the shower curtains, the hosing people down, the spraying things incessantly, if that doesn't sound like child abuse or neglect, I don't know what does. I just don't know what does. It continues, quote, Several common elements are found in state child abuse statutes. The laws mandate that certain professionals, such as doctors, nurses, and teachers, report suspected abuse. Statutes do not require that reporters have absolute knowledge that a child has been abused or neglected, but rather have reasonable cause to believe or reason to believe. Which again, and it's going to say this in Ohio as well, that you can even report in, in bad faith and not be held accountable. You don't even have to be a medical doctor or a lawyer to report child abuse regarding the mask wearing, the distancing, the jab stuff. You don't have to. All you have to do is just have it written down that this is, in fact, medical abuse because of the harm that it's causing. So that's a suggestion I, I suggest people make. And later on, you can certainly go to your police departments and fill out a police report and include all of this information there. Again, that's another move that I'm shocked people aren't making, is going to police departments. But again, as I said earlier, it depends on how awake the police department is. Um, let's see. Quote, once abuse is suspected, the report must be made immediately to the designated Child Protection Agency, Department of Welfare, or Law Enforcement Unit. All states grant immunity from civil and criminal liability to individuals if reports are made in good faith. In Ohio, absolute immunity exists even for reports made in bad faith. So in Ohio, unfortunately, you can lie about child abuse and not be held accountable. They'll just yell at you or something. Unless, of course, that's changed because, again, this is a second edition written in 1987. <clears throat> it continues here and then wraps up this particular section. Although state laws are explicit as to reporting requirements for suspected child abuse, it is difficult to prove that a teacher had sufficient knowledge of child abuse to trigger legal liability for failure to report. Therefore, it is desirable for school officials to establish policies and procedures to encourage effective reporting. The pervasiveness of the problem and the lack of reporting by teachers also indicates a need for in-service programs to assist teachers in recognizing signs of abused and neglected children. You think? Except, of course, the only professional development that's taking place now in schools where they're jabbed to the bone, masked to the bone, and distanced to the bone is how important all of that is to maintain the safety and health of everybody involved. And that they're using that as justification for professional development, which, again, it's not an excuse. Um, it wraps up. Last paragraph here. Given the substantial national publicity focusing on child abuse, many school boards are also enacting policies to ensure that teachers and other school employees do not become the targets of child abuse charges. It is becoming increasingly common for school boards to prohibit physical contact between teachers and students in the absence of another adult, and to place restrictions on private meetings between students and teachers before or after school. 
employees can face disciplinary action for failing to comply with such directives, even if they are not found guilty of actual child abuse. Um, let's see. It says conclusion. Except for certain limitations imposed by constitutional provisions and federal civil rights laws, the employment of teachers is governed by state statutes. The state prescribes general requirements for certification, contracts, tenure, and employment. Local, local school boards must follow state mandates and, in addition, may impose other requirements. In general, the following terms and conditions govern teacher employment. And then it just goes through. That last sentence is unfortunately important. Um, <clears throat> again, local school boards must follow state mandates and, in addition, may impose other requirements. That's a very unfortunate sentence, and it could hinder the entire thing. But the point is, is that, unfortunately, um, if it's state-mandated that the masks have to be worn, so be it. But in states where it's not mandated or it's been overruled, then that does, in fact, mean, the way that I'm interpreting this, that public schools are, in fact, breaking the law in particular from a negligent and child abuse standpoint. Because again, if you can prove, and clearly anybody can clearly prove if they're wide awake, that these, that the, again, the mask wearing, the distancing, the what have you, um, is, is harming people. Then, then you not only have a case, but you have a criminal case. So I think, again, I'm, I'm just playing Columbo here and I'm playing Perry Mason as well. So you're just going to have to bear with me. Um, <clears throat> page 405, unprofessional conduct. Get a load of this one. Two paragraphs, both worth reading. Quote, approximately 14 states identify either unprofessional conduct or conduct unbecoming a teacher as a cause for dismissal. A teacher's activities, both inside and outside of school, can be used to establish grounds for discharge. Dismissals for unprofessional conduct, neglect of duty, and unfitness to teach often are based on quite similar facts. For instance, a New York teacher was dismissed for unprofessional conduct for being absent after, after having been denied permission for a leave, whereas a Colorado teacher in a similar situation was charged with neglect of duty. A Maine school board classified a teacher's unauthorized absence as unfitness to teach. It must be remembered that causes for dismissal are usually identified in state statutes, but are defined through the case law and various administrative rulings in individual states. Consequently, there are wide variances in the meaning of the same legal cause. Courts have upheld dismissal for unprofessional conduct based on a number of grounds, such as arrest for alleged shoplifting, these are rather hilarious because these were all actual things that teachers did. Serving liquor to two female students, use of abusive language to other school personnel, indictment for possession of cocaine with intent to distribute, failure of a teacher's children to attend school in violation of the compulsory attendance law, refusal to attend faculty in-service meetings, and to supervise children during recess. Engaging in sexually suggestive behavior with a mannequin on front lawn of home. Yes, you heard that correctly. A teacher actually did that. 
and indictment on welfare fraud charges. As with incompetency cases, courts often often require prior warning that the behavior may result in dismissal. I, I certainly think, unquote, by the way, I certainly think that at this stage we are talking about incompetency issues, are we not? It certainly seems like it, at least to me. Here's the next section, page 462, Standard of Care. Certainly seems relevant, does it not? So here we go, quote, the standard of care required in various school settings is governed by the reasonableness theory. In assessing the reasonableness theory, or reasonableness, of an individual's actions, courts determine whether a reasonable and prudent person would have acted in the same manner under similar circumstances. The reasonable person has been described as one who has, number one, the physical attributes of the defendant himself. Two, Normal intelligence, well, I think we're way past that, aren't we? It then says, number three, normal perception and memory, with a minimum level of information and experience common to the community, and four, such superior skill and knowledge as the actor has or holds himself out to the public as having. And it continues, and it says, under this standard, a teacher's conduct is gauged by how a reasonable teacher who has had special training to assume that role, would have acted in a similar situation, unquote. Now again, go back to 2019. Why do we have so many school boards playing doctor? Why do we have so many administrators playing doctor? Because a doctor tells them to do it? Because a medical doctor says this is okay and this is the thing to do? If a medical doctor said hitting children on the head with a rubber mallet is the thing to do because fill in the blank, and the teacher does it, does that mean that the teacher can't be sued for abuse or neglect or, or be fired for a lack of standard of care? Of course not. They can be charged, and they should be, frankly. All of them should be. The entire profession should be fired for all of the individuals that are going through with this and allowing this. I've said that before, but my God in heaven. <clears throat> it continues. The degree of care owned is determined by factors such as the age of the student, the environment, and the type of instructional activity. For example, young primary grade students require closer supervision and more detailed instructions than high school students. A higher level of care is required in laboratory classes, gymnasiums, and other environments where risk of harm is great. Variably, in the level of care deemed reasonable is illustrated in a Louisiana case, this case involved the fatal injury of a mentally retarded student who darted into a busy thoroughfare while being escorted with nine other retarded students to a park three blocks from the school campus. An appellate court noted, a crosswalk basically, an appellate court noted that the general level of care required for all students, quote, becomes more onerous when the student body is composed of mentally retarded youngsters, unquote. Furthermore, the, co the, the court noted that this higher level of care becomes even greater when such a group of children is taken away from the school campus. Accordingly, the court found negligence in that one teacher was inadequate to supervise the group and the safest walking route was not selected, unquote. So we're talking about someone being hit by a car, a student, dying, 
as a result of being hit by a car. And yet, students in school buildings are vomiting, getting skin rashes, being thrown in detention for having their mask below their nose, becoming agitated. Did I say vomiting? Inability to breathe properly and being forced to do all of this even in gym classes. So if walking across the street is dangerous and a, and a teacher can be sued for not protecting students appropriately, if you can prove, which again, I'm repeating myself, we can prove it, that the mask wearing, the distancing, XYZ, is unhealthy, then that right there should be shown to, again, lawyers with their heads on straight, police officers with their heads on straight. And this is assuming, of course, that you still want to send your child back to said environment. It, it's, it's pretty clear here. Again, I understand the state mandate argument. I get it. But if the state mandate, as I said, is to hit someone over the head with a rubber mallet, well, common sense trumps state mandates because a mandate is not a law. And that also has to be kept in mind throughout this entire process. Mandates aren't laws. Okay, last section from this book, page 464. Subsection is titled Injury. Quote, one paragraph. To receive an award of damages, a plaintiff must have suffered an actual injury from the negligent conduct of the defendant. Even if conduct is considered negligent, legal action cannot be sustained unless the conduct actually results in physical or mental injury. If an injury is caused by the negligent action of more than one individual, damages will be apportioned accordingly. Compensation may include any direct financial loss, i.e. medical expenses or loss of income, as well as remuneration for pain and suffering. In the drill press injury previously noted, which I'm sure was horrible, the injured student was awarded a total of $25,000 in damages, approximately $4,000 for medical expenses, and the remainder for pain and disability caused by the permanent weakening of the skull. Yikes. Ah, the old drill press. <clears throat> Remember those days? Remember those days when everybody got to play with the drill press? Oh, wow. The good old days. Anyway, I'm going to wrap it up with that. I do want to play this audio here in just a second, but just to summarize this book. And again, not a lawyer, but I like to think I am from time to time. The fact is, is that laws are being broken. We're talking about negligent laws regarding school law. We're talking about injury laws. We're talking about unsafe environment laws. We're talking about Again, conduct unbecoming an educator. These are all fireable offenses because what is playing out here is not the law. They are mandates. The mask wearing is not a law. It's a mandate. Now, the question I think, which is, again, going to be very interesting going forward, is what state is going to mandate law, mandate, I'm sorry, is going to enforce mask wearing as a law in particular places. Can they do that? We know that they can't. 
which means what they're doing right now, in, in, in including the jab itself, is they're bumping right up against the law and what they can get away with and what they can't. And that's a big intentional. That's a giant intentional. That's not an accident. They're doing that to see how many people will comply with their mandates, thinking they're laws when in fact they're not. And that's happening, unfortunately. Again, it's, it's, a, it's clearly a sad, a sad state of affairs here. But can you prove that your child or children are being harmed in these environments, medically speaking? The answer is yes. Again, revisit nomaskforkids.com, that website. The evidence is right there, albeit anecdotal. It's still there. And if it's happened to you and your child or someone that you know, all you have to do, again, it, it would certainly require a competent, uh, a competent medical doctor. But if you can get a medical doctor to sign off on the fact that, yes, the mask wearing is in fact causing X, Y, and Z medical problems or mental and emotional problems, psychological problems for you know, student A, student B, and student C, then so be it. Then you get that in writing. And then you, of course, take it to a police officer or a lawyer or what have you. I would like people to skip the legal aspect of it from a lawyer standpoint and find a competent um, police officer that would simply say, okay, I'm going to arrest you. We're going to question you. At least it would squeeze the individual a little bit and maybe get them to panic. But again, that would take a competent police officer or a competent police force to do such a thing. But I think we're moving in that direction because look at how bad things already are now. They can always get worse, but they can also always get better. And that's, that's something that is certainly worth recording and, 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 and noting, I think, throughout this entire process. As far as keeping documentation of, of what you've witnessed, if, you've, if you're a school teacher and you're listening to this, or you're a parent and you're listening to this, and you're sending your children to, to public school environments, consistently keeping a documented recording of what's going on, again, on a Word document or on a computer somewhere, and saving that incessantly is, is going to be a massive move going forward. And I would encourage you to, to have your friends do the exact same. The sad and pathetic part is how many parents are actually moving forward with all of this thinking that it's actually helping somebody instead of it being against the law and normalizing slavery and normalizing the erosion of our individual rights and liberties because that's really what it is. It's the erosion of all of those things. So, are they breaking the law? Yes. Because a mandate's not a law. Are they creating an unhealthy environment? Yes. The masks, the transmissibility of being around the jabbed, of course they don't know that. But that is a thing that has been proven. The distancing, the wiping things down. And again, when it comes to discipline, have they written it in their discipline policies that if your mask falls below your nose, then you need to be shown the door, detention, expelled, or, or thrown into a, um, you know, an alternative school, for example? If that's not written in their contracts and that's not written in their codes of conduct, then yes, they're breaking the law. And they can be held accountable for negligence because of their own discipline policies. 
And again, that just needs to be thought about, recorded, documented, written down. And then for Christ's sake, somebody's got to follow through on it. Somebody just has to follow through on it. So with that said, I want to play this audio. This audio comes from GB News. And I've played this man before. You may, might recognize his voice. He's got a nice Scottish accent, it certainly sounds like. His name is Neil Oliver, and he has a show, again, on Great Britain News. So it's approximately six minutes long. It's certainly inspirational, I think. Some words of warning as well. Give this a listen. Um, I'll close out this episode with his audio. Be sure and tune in and check out Wednesday's episode I'm going to be talking with Dr. Robin McCutcheon from Marshall University, economics professor. She's been on the podcast numerous times. Um, I've had her on, I want to say, approximately once a month, perhaps. Um, She's a good friend, and we're going to be talking about a number of different things, as you might expect. So tune in for that one, and here is Mr. Oliver. There's fear in the air. There's no mistaking it. It's made all the more noticeable by the fact Britain has never, not in my memory at least, been a fearful place. And for the longest time, the British have not been a fearful people. I remember unrest and discontent. Of course I do. I remember righteous anger. But I don't remember the smell of fear. I see the strongest smell of fear, not just here, but elsewhere in countries of the developed West, is emanating not from the ordinary people, but from the leaders leaders of governments, leaders of giant corporations. There are plenty of frightened citizens as well, masked up and isolated, driven to distraction by months, now years of mismanagement, misinformation and propaganda, all of it combining to create a wearying, debilitating sense of constant anxiety and uncertainty. But the strongest smell of fear comes not from those at the bottom of the pile, rather from those at the top. And what are they so frightened of, these governments and leaders? I'll tell you what, they're frightened of their own people. They're frightened of us, and there are a lot of us. It wasn't until the first decade of the 19th century that the population of the world reached a billion. It took another century and a quarter after that milestone for the headcount to double to two billion, and then just 30 years to get to three billion. It's estimated that now we're adding an extra billion people every 15 years or so. There are 8 billion of us now, more people alive at once than ever before. More people means more and more pressure on all the things worth having. Not just toilet paper and diesel, but freedom and space in which to live and roam. While the many queue and squabble over loo roll and gas for the tank, because that's where the mainstream media is goading us to look, The leaders tell us our troubles are all our own fault anyway. Brexit breaking supply chains, our lifestyles making the planet too hot. All they need is more of our time, they bleat. More of our cooperation, more of our money, just more. But as the line goes in the outlaw Josie Wales, don't pee down my back and tell me it's raining. As well as the leaders, the billionaire elites are fearful too. Billionaires are adding billions to their wealth, not by the decade, but with every week and month of the present crisis. I can imagine it might be frightening to have so much when so many beyond the castle walls have so little or nothing at all, not even hope. 
I think of a technocrat billionaire and in my mind's eye, I get an image of a cat being carried through the crowds on a busy city street inside one of those plastic crates you see in airports, looking out at us through the grill with fearful, uncomprehending eyes. With great wealth comes great anxiety, apparently. As well as fearing the people, like the leaders do, I think those billionaires don't much like us either. We're like ants and wasps, spoiling what might otherwise be a lovely picnic just for them. Our small lives are petty concerns. Rent, mortgages, health and education are beneath them. More importantly, our lives are made so different by circumstances we're becoming increasingly incomprehensible to them. There are two groups to watch, those with everything to lose and those with nothing to lose. Leaders feeling backed into a corner by the great unwashed often seek safety by demanding and then taking more and more control, for our own good, of course. From the beginning, emperors have felt safest when as many people as possible are kneeling down or lying flat on their faces so they might be walked over. It's hard for a person to defend him or herself from a kneeling position or prone, far less fight. Fearful leaders need insulation between themselves and the people and so prefer to hoard everything of value, food, resources, wealth, so they might dole out the crumbs. There's already talk of an end to money as we have known it, to be replaced by something virtual and digital you can neither see nor touch. Imagine a world where it's not you that decides how much of your money you can spend on beer or meat or a holiday, but an algorithm making that decision for you, for your own good. Fear makes the fearful lash out. Australia makes for shocking viewing right now. Black-clad enforcers dressed and armed more like stormtroopers than police and beating citizens with sticks, firing rubber bullets at them, kicking and kneeing them while they lie pinned and helpless on the ground, men throttling women. My family and I spent time in Australia. My kids went to school there and learned and sang the national anthem of those days. I clearly remember the line, Australians all let us rejoice for we are young and free. Not so much now, apparently. Is Australia the canary in the coal mine? The weather vane showing which way the wind is blowing? Your guess is as good as mine. What we have now is an unholy alliance between fearful leaders and contemptuous billionaire technocrats. Together they have the tools to take all and keep all. Never in the field of human relations has so much been taken from so many by so few. I say the best leaders are those that people barely notice. Those who, without fanfare or hope of immortality, defend freedom and let people go about their business unmolested. Those that seek praise for their efforts are tolerable too, as long as they keep the lights on at the same time as preening for the cameras. The leaders the people and then history do not forgive are those that make themselves feared and then despised. Remember at all times that your life is your own and your hopes and dreams weigh the same as those of any emperor or billionaire. They're frightened. You can smell it. it smells like victory. Hold the line. Thank you for listening to American Education FM. Make sure and check out AmericanEducationFM.com for more information. Take care and God bless.